Welcome back to Built to Win, presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. This week, we're going to be talking about a brand new paper from FGA. And sitting down to discuss this paper is, of course, the paper's author, Scott Centorino. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Dan. Good to be here. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for joining and taking some time. So the report that was highlighted, it talks about how states can take back control of their welfare programs. And it's an extremely important topic for our listeners to understand. But before we begin, there's an important bit of information we do need to tackle. There was a large welfare reform package back in 1996, where Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich came together to pass very substantive reforms. But many of our listeners don't know about that and probably hearing it wonder, why is reform even necessary today in light of that package? Scott, can you walk our listeners through, you know, what that historical reform package was, what it means, and why that package wasn't sufficient? Sure, yeah. No, it's, it's a really good question. And I'm really glad that you started there because all the issues that we're dealing with now obviously have deep roots. And so it's good to understand what those roots are. Obviously today, you know, people being out of the workforce, it's probably the biggest single economic issue we're dealing with right now. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest political issues that we're dealing with. But you're right. It, it makes sense to go back a little bit and see how we got here because I think really we're making among other mistakes, two big mistakes in looking at welfare reform and and labor market stuff right now. One of them is, I think, in a lot of ways, we're looking at sort of proximate causes more than underlying causes, and that's what going back in history helps with a little bit. And there are certainly deep, long-term underlying causes at work here that pre-existed even the pandemic, and and we're going to get into that, I know. But the second mistake is we often find ourselves today looking only at politics at the federal level in D.C. and and, and federal policies. And it's true that a lot of federal policies drive a lot of this, especially in areas like Social Security disability, where the the feds basically run the show completely. But a lot of the failures that we're seeing right now are the results of failures in other welfare programs in which states, not the federal government, have a lot of control. And so starting with the 1996 welfare reform bill is a good place to start. And we were talking beforehand, I know, the very small, I'll defend my, my own youth here, the very small <laughs> age difference between you and I, whatever that line is, I don't know if it's 30, 35, 40, folks <laughs> above a certain age, when they hear the term welfare reform, they immediately think of Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, 96, and them coming together to, to pass that welfare reform bill. Folks underneath that age, whatever it is, but apparently a lot of people are underneath it these days, have no no context for that. And so it's, it's really useful to start there. At a very, very high level, the answer to the question of what the heck was welfare reform of 1996 is it was a compromise bill at the federal level between congressional Republicans that came in after the 1994 midterms with Newt Gingrich and Contract for America and all that, and the Clinton administration. Clinton had campaigned on a promise to end welfare as we know it, was the exact quote. And that, of course, was beautifully vague, but it did give him wiggle room on this issue. And so the compromise that the two parties came up with was, I'm obviously simplifying here, but they basically, the biggest part of the reform was in cash welfare, which had been called 
the AFDC changed its name to TANF, T-A-N-F, which stands for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Again, that's just the cash welfare program. It was reformed in a few different ways. The most important ones being it would give states a lot more flexibility on how they used federal money that was coming to their state for the program. It would act more like a block grant in that sense. But one of the limits to that block grant was that states had to impose a work requirement on enrollees who were able-bodied, and states had to impose at least a five-year maximum, basically a lifetime limit on folks on the program. There are some exceptions to that, but basically states could not use federal dollars on TANF or cash welfare enrollees for more than five years over the course of their lives. And that's obviously what the intention was to make it less of a way of life and more of a temporary assistance program uh, and trying to get people back to work. So that was the big welfare reform bill of 1996. And in a lot of ways in the welfare space, we are still living in its shadows. It still colors our perception of other welfare programs, of welfare and work in general. But I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit in this conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Now that all of our listeners are experts on welfare reform and its history, let's say, or at least maybe the specifics in 1996, at least that. Scott, the paper talks about what states can do. So I have to ask, do state leaders not already have control? And you know, if so, on whatever way, why or why not? Yeah. So just like any joint federal state program, and most of these welfare programs are joint federal state programs, state leaders have some control. And they're often frustrated in the fact that they get a lot of handcuffs placed on them by federal law and regulation, but their state dollars are are in the programs. And so in a lot of ways, they feel like one hand's tied behind their back. In other ways, they feel like two hands are tied behind their back in, in some of the programs. So it depends on the program, of course. We're not going to go into all the details here, but at a very high level, I'll take the, the two biggest welfare programs as an example, Medicaid and food stamps. And that's one thing I should probably pause to mention. One of the misconceptions about, quote unquote, welfare reform of 1996 is that it fixed all welfare programs. But really, it was almost exclusively about the cash welfare program, which today is one of the smallest welfare programs, actually. It barely touched Medicaid, which is the biggest one, barely touched food stamps. Uh, it really didn't touch housing at all, public housing. And so there was a lot left undone. The good thing, if you try to take an optimistic silver lining outlook on life, which I try to do, is that it left a lot of opportunities for states to do more in those other programs. And so there are still opportunities in food stamps, for example, and Medicaid for states to make good welfare reforms. In a lot of ways, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They just have to apply a lot of the same lessons from the 96 welfare reform on cash welfare at the federal level to their state Medicaid program or their food stamp program. And that's what in this paper we talk about 10 things. That's what a lot of these things actually are, are just recommending that states adopt the same successful measures from that 96 bill in cash welfare and just apply it to their other welfare programs. But this is actually a really good time for states to pause and take stock of each of their welfare programs. As we kind of mentioned at the beginning, this is a moment where a lot of folks are out of the workforce. That was an issue before the pandemic. I mean, a lot of books and papers were written on especially prime age men falling out of the workforce. You know, we used to use unemployment as a, as a good metric for 
for the economy, it's really not the best metric right now because there are so many folks, including able-bodied people, that could work, but they're not even looking for work. So they're not counted among the unemployed because unemployed only counts people who are out of a job and looking for work. But this is a time where, where that's probably the most important, like I said, most important economic issue, one of the most important political issues. So it's a good moment for states to pause and, and look at their welfare programs and try to figure out how they can design these programs to get people out of welfare and back to work. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, you know, on the, the front of, you know, a good moment for states to reflect and see what they can do. I do want to briefly outline the 10 reforms that are in Scott's great paper, which we do not have time to hit on all 10 today in detail. We're going to cover a few of them. If you're at all interested, of course, the paper will be linked in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down and check that out. Broadly, the report found that to promote work and protect welfare resources for the truly needy, state leaders can and should implement these 10 following reforms. So first, cross-check available data against welfare enrollment to stop the abuses of work requirement waivers and no good cause exemptions in food stamps. Three, expand the work requirement in food stamps. Four, close the broad-based categorical eligibility loophole in food stamps. Five, require child support cooperation for food stamps and child care subsidies. Six, switch to change reporting and shorten the recertification period in food stamps. Seven, close loopholes to waste and fraud in Medicare. Eight, implement a three strikes and you're out standard for hospital presumptive eligibility in Medicaid. Nine, use only reliable information on pre-populated forms in Medicaid. And 10, operate time limits in TANF that reduce chronic dependency. So can I actually, can I, can I interrupt you very yeah. rudely for a moment? Yeah, yeah. So before we dive into any of these, for the four people that didn't drop off when they heard pre-populated forms in Medicaid, just if I can opine for a moment, I know I'm a policy guy, but as a political matter, one thing that all 10 of these, and I know we're not going to go into all of them, but as a political matter, all 10 of these things kind of have one thing in common, and it's, it's really interesting to see it in the trenches, like I do, frankly, talking to state legislators. All 10 of these things, if you see them in action, they are among the very few things that really unite the right. So beginning there, I mean, for social conservatives, it's about individual dignity and the value of every person in the eyes of God. For fiscal conservatives, these save money. For nationalist conservatives, this is about American muscle getting America back to work and our industries leading the world. For, for moderates, this is in a totally non-ideological way. These are all just common sense, basic things that our welfare program should be designed to get able-bodied adults back to work and preserve welfare for folks that, that can't do that. And then fusionist conservatives, they believe all those things. And so all these things are true. And so they like it too. So, And then on the left, for the same reason that welfare reform was popular in the 90s, almost all 10 of these, if not all 10, appeal to moderate Democrats as well. And so, and that shows up in the polling. And it always has, frankly. Again, that's why Bill Clinton latched onto it in the 90s when he was triangulating that's one of the interesting things about this welfare reform. And that's why this is actually a really good moment for it. Yeah, I think that's an extremely astute point there, Scott. I mean, just how straightforward these policies are and these reforms can be. So to that point, I do want to talk about a couple of them. Firstly, let's talk about cross-checking available data against welfare enrollment. For our listeners, talk broadly to us, what does this do? Who does it help? How does it do it? And 
wouldn't states already be doing this now? I mean, I'm kind of confused. Yeah, that's actually the perfect way to frame that question. Because if I, you know, I'll call it the Sarah principle. What I do for my job is so in-depth on a lot of these programs that sometimes what I'll do is I'll bounce ideas off of my wife, whose name's Sarah, who is fairly <laughs> apolitical, actually, and just doesn't pay attention to public policy or politics really at all. And it's one of the things I love about her is we don't talk about this stuff at all. Um, but uh, a lot of times I'll bounce ideas off of her. And at one point, a couple of years ago, I said to her, hey, should states, if, if states have a Medicaid program and are, and are spending millions and millions of dollars, it's usually the biggest line item in every state budget. If, if folks are on Medicaid, should states just regularly, say monthly or, or at the very least quarterly, take the list of people who are receiving Medicaid benefits especially the able-bodied adults on Medicaid, and just make sure that those names are not on a list of names of people who are incarcerated in the state, in prison. Uh, it's probably worth saying, if you're incarcerated, you are ineligible for Medicaid for a lot of reasons, but that's just the law. And her response, like yours in the question, was, wait a minute, are you telling me states don't already do that? <laughs> and the answer is no. Almost every state has very, very lax standards for just simply cross-checking welfare enrollment with other state data sets. And, and it's probably worth spelling this out even more clearly. We're not talking about going out into the ether and tracking people down in the dead of night and finding out what, what all of the circumstances in their life are every single month to make sure they're eligible for, for every welfare program. We're only talking about cross-checking enrollment the folks who are receiving benefits, with data sets that the state already collects. So the state obviously already has or can easily produce based on other data it already has a list of people who are incarcerated. That's just one example. There are other lists out there. People who have won uh, lottery winnings, for example. Yeah. Employers have to file quarterly reports, wage and tax records. So we know on a quarterly basis at the state level where folks are working, what their wages are, things like that. I'm just giving you a couple examples here, but there are more sure. of state-owned data sets that, again, state agencies are already, in a lot of cases, spending money to gather that information, collect it, maintain those lists as accurately as possible. But on and that's, the, that's the left hand, but the right hand has no idea what the left hand's doing. And the right hand, in my analogy, is welfare agencies very rarely will cross-check their own enrollment lists with those other state lists. And so one of the things we're recommending states do, and this is just basic common sense program integrity. It should have basically no ideological component at all. And that passes the Sarah test in that way, uh, <laughs> is just make sure that the people on the program are eligible. Not Again, not submitting them for a full reapplication, just making sure they're not on lists of people. They're not on lists that would indicate that the enrollee is ineligible. For example, lottery winners. If somebody's won a million dollars, in the state lottery, they should not continue to receive food stamps. And so just cross-checking those lists on a regular basis, it's a step that some states have taken in recent years, but it's a step that a lot of states have still not taken despite the common sense. Yeah, I think that's a really great point there. Uh, another one that I wanted to cover for our listeners today is on the topic of work requirements. Now, there's a couple of reforms that actually include them. I think it's across maybe two or three, but I think we can talk broadly just about work requirements. So it was my understanding that at the federal level, 
the Biden administration was working to end work requirements in most of American welfare programs that are run at the state level. Considering that, can states still implement work requirements? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because it really does. There, there are certain parameters for each program, and and we won't go into all the details. But there is the good news is there is still a lot of flexibility for states to have strong work requirements in their welfare programs, in particular in food stamps. Medicaid is a different story, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit. But you're right. This administration, as compared to the last administration, is much less friendly toward work requirements in welfare programs. You know. If I may harp on the 96 welfare reform, maybe one last time, Bill Clinton back then used to say the era of big government is over. Joe Biden, President Biden, has basically said the era of big government is just getting started. And part of that is basically a totally opposite view about work requirements. If you get a chance or any listeners get a chance, I won't bore everyone right now, but just looking at the data from the 96 welfare reform bill in the the narrow example of TANF cash welfare. If you look at child poverty, poverty among women, single moms, it is exceptional, the results that that welfare reform had. And the biggest part of that welfare reform was work requirements, that and the lifetime benefit limit. And so applying that lesson, that the power of work, of getting people back into their community, and, and again, just as, as a to step one step back here, When we say work requirements, sometimes that's misunderstood to be, well, what if somebody can't get a paid job? Let's say they're in in an area that's depressed for for whatever reason. Sure. Work requirements kind of shorthand. It really, in in some ways, could be called a community engagement requirement. We're talking about requirements that folks work, train, or volunteer for just 20 hours a week for the most part. And so even if somebody can't find paid work, they can comply with a work requirement by volunteering somewhere locally. It's worth pointing that out, but the, the results. Uh, so that's, I think that's an extremely good point. I think it's yeah. actually one that's that's often missed. I mean, probably because of the name, but I like yeah, I like and, your and reframe there. It's 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 important. I think I have to remind myself to to spell that out because a lot of folks will latch on to and 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 a lot of it's from good intention. You know, if you don't know that somebody can comply with a work requirement by volunteering, you can have real reservations about one. If you if you represent a district that is you know facing hard times, but the good news is you can still comply with a work requirement by volunteering. And it's it's worth saying, volunteering, getting back into your community, building a network of folks that you know that can trust you that that know they can rely on you to show up on time uh, every day. That's the easiest way to get a paying job. Even if you can't find paid work, getting back into your community is a good way to find paid work uh, by volunteering. But anyway, to, to your broader question of what states can do to implement work requirements, even during the Biden administration. So I'll, I'll briefly kind of take on Medicaid because it's, it's unfortunately a quick one. The administration, just to catch everyone up, has basically said that, and this is this is actually a good example of, of one area where states don't have much flexibility. Just so everybody knows, in Medicaid, in order to implement a work requirement, states have been for the last few years asking the federal government permission, basically through a waiver, to implement work requirements just for able-bodied adults who are yeah. on their state Medicaid programs. The Biden administration, uh, one of its first actions in coming to power was to say that those waivers would not be granted basically during this administration. So Hmm. states that had been considering one basically have had the door slammed on their faces and they're they're left trying to figure out other ways to move able-bodied adults out of dependency and back into the workforce. 
but work requirements is unfortunately not a, a tool at their disposal that will get much support at the federal level. The good news, though, is food stamps uh, is, is a different story. There is still a good amount of flexibility that states have to implement really strong work requirements. Now, it's, it's worth saying the work requirement in food stamps at the federal level has been suspended under federal legislation from back in March of 2020, and that suspension will continue until the end of the public health emergency that'll be ended hopefully at some point in the next few months here, but we're not sure exactly. But in the meantime, because that will come to an end, like all things, states can have and have had in the past statewide food stamp work requirements for able-bodied adults without dependents in their state, across their state, and that's something that they don't need to ask the federal government for. In fact, it's the opposite. If states want to waive their work requirement in an area, and they shouldn't, by the way, but if they want to, they need to ask the federal government for permission to do that. Now, unfortunately, this administration may be more inclined to grant those waivers than the previous one. But the good news is if a state wants to implement statewide work requirements and food stamps, which it should uh, for all the reasons we've mentioned, they can do that whether the federal government wants them to or not. That's the default. And so states should definitely pursue that and close other loopholes that, that unfortunately have popped up in that work requirement. Thanks, Scott. That does bring us to the end of our podcast segment today. Unfortunately, I do want to close us out with just one kind of final point from you, Scott, and just, you know, quickly for our state legislators that are listening and our elected officials that are listening and also our policy experts, folks more like you, less like me, I'll say. I was going <laughs> to say no folks one like, like us. You, Dan. There's only one Dan. There's that's, only one that's Scott. what your mom told me to say. <laughs> that's what your mom told me to say. What You talk to my mom, I talk to your mom. Interesting. But <laughs> so to recap for today's episode, we'll get a little more serious again for a moment. What loopholes exist in the Medicaid program broadly and how can states fix them? Sure. Well, the, the most obvious one is, I'll call it a scheme. You can probably tell how I feel about it based on that word choice, called post-enrollment verification. This was kind of a problem before COVID, but it's become a little bit of a, of a disaster during COVID. So that's exactly what it sounds like. We sign somebody up for Medicaid, and then at some point after they're enrolled, we'll check to see if they're eligible. Literally, that's what post-enrollment verification is, or at least of some eligibility factors like income, household composition, things like that. Things that usually, or I should say, often disqualify people from Medicaid are checked only after the person is enrolled in the program. That's post-enrollment verification. I call it a loophole, but really it's, it's a slow motion train wreck right now during COVID because as some of our listeners may know, since early 2020, since, since COVID uh, legislation came down from the feds, States have, talk about handcuffs, states have been unable under, and this is a whole other topic, but the short version is under MOE, maintenance of effort, handcuffs basically been told their Medicaid programs cannot disenroll or remove anyone from Medicaid, period, full stop, even if they become ineligible, even if they commit fraud in the program. So if somebody dropped out of the workforce, for example, in April of 2020, because they were waiting tables and the restaurant closed and they got on Medicaid and then the restaurant re reopened in a limited capacity and they went back to work and their income went back up and they're no longer eligible for Medicaid. Well, guess what? The state can't remove them. So they're still getting Medicaid a year later on the program. And so you combine that, that dynamic, which again, this is something that a lot of people don't know about, although I know every state legislator listening to this right now knows about that at this point mm -hmm. because it's been such a drag on state budgets. 
But if you combine that with post-enrollment verification, well, I don't really need to spell it out, but but I will anyway. If if you're only verifying that somebody's eligible until after they're enrolled, but you can't disenroll anyone, even if they're ineligible, you basically just got a, a super highway to enrollment in Medicaid, which is an extremely expensive program, growing more expensive even before the pandemic. And now it's it's just an incredible anchor weighing down every state budget. I mean, that's that it's calling that a loophole is the understatement of the century. That is just yeah. a recipe for an explosion of welfare. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for that great download. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, on this episode of Built to Win, where we've been discussing a new report from the Foundation for Government Accountability, discussing and highlighting how states can take back control of their welfare programs. I've been sitting down with the report's author, Scott Centorino, Senior Fellow here at FGA. Scott, thank you so much for joining Built to Win today and giving our listeners all of your great insight. Thanks, Dan. This is fun. And if you would like to be featured on the FGA Built to Win podcast, do not hesitate to email me at dreynolds at thefga.org. Please rate and subscribe us wherever you get podcasts. It helps us find some new listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org and tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office. 